Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher in New York City. Glad to be bringing you yet another episode. Looking forward to next weekend when I'll be traveling back to my beloved Secaucus, New Jersey, to again participate in yet another circuit championship on WSOP.com. I have a few more hands from the tournament that we discussed last week, turning into a bit of a hand history review But there were just a few spots in that tournament that I thought we should discuss here on the podcast. Uh, Before we get to that, I want to let you guys know what's going on with our dear friend Mike Possle, your friend and mine, the uh, most notorious cheater in recent memory, recently gave up on his $330 million defamation lawsuit. So it wasn't enough that he was quote-unquote vindicated, which basically means that the case was thrown out. Uh, no one ever said he was innocent, but the case was dismissed. Um, so after that, he felt vindicated enough to then go after everyone who ever said that he had cheated on any podcast. So I guess we were always in the clear, guys, in case anyone was losing sleep over whether or not I would end up in court across from Mike Possel. I always use the word allegedly. So, <laughs> And I gave my opinions which you are allowed to do. At no time did I ever, and you guys can go back and listen, at no time did I ever directly accuse him of being a cheater. I strongly hinted at it, and I obviously expressed my opinion that it appeared to me that he was cheating. And I'm careful because I know people who have been sued, and slander is a serious allegation that can often result in monetary damages being awarded to the slandered, and in this case, it looked like he may have a case, but as it turns out, uh, his lawyer walked away from the whole thing, and I think that that was the final nail in the coffin for Mr. Possel, who you really have to respect the pure audacity of someone who was so clearly (laughs) cheating, then suing people for defamation and... uh, what is it, defamation of character and slander and all these other things that he supposedly was the victim of in all of this. Just an amazing amount of audacity all around. This guy sued Veronica Brill, Todd Wittellis, PokerNews.com, and so many other defendants in his civil suit. It's absolutely amazing to me that he would have the audacity I mean, you get away with cheating. You you might want to just disappear and never be seen again. But no, this guy has a real set on him. Let's put it that way. Uh, I'm glad that he doesn't get any more money than the money that he quote unquote earned at Stone's Gambling Hall. But yeah, I would avoid this guy like the plague for the rest of my life. I don't expect him to be showing his face 
in too many poker rooms in the coming decades, but stranger things have happened. I also never thought that I would see Chris Ferguson at the World Series of Poker ever again. And then, to my shock, he not only showed up, but won Player of the Year. So, (laughs) what can you do? I mean, cheaters and other dishonest scumbags do make a habit of returning to the scene of the crime. So, perhaps this story is to be continued. But certainly I'm glad for Veronica and the others that they didn't end up having to pay this guy money for supposedly damaging his uh, pristine and spotless reputation. Anyway, enough about that. Let's get into the hands again. This comes from a $300 tournament that I played a few weeks ago now on WSOP.com. This is a circuit ring, official circuit ring event, not a main event. Those are 500. So this is a 300 with, I believe you were limited to two re-entries, but I ended up not having to do any re-entries, which is good news. I haven't revealed how I ended up doing in this tournament, but we're going to continue basically where we left off before. At this point in the tournament, the blinds were 250 and 500 with a 65 ante per player for a starting pot of 1335. The action folds to the cutoff who min raises to 1,000 with 21,000 behind. So his M is right around 15. We're in the big blind with about 41,000 behind. So our M is about 28. So we're doing great. Didn't mean to make that rhyme, but I'm going to leave it anyway. Uh, The average stack at this point was about 30K. So yeah, we're doing fine. We don't really have to go too crazy. I do tend to alter my strategy ever so slightly, depending on how desperate my situation is, both in terms of actual number of big blinds and also my relative overall standing in the tournament. Now, of course, that becomes much more important later on as we get toward the money and especially around the bubble where I'd like to have a big stack to abuse people with. So at this point, that is not that great of a consideration, but maybe just might ever so slightly affect my decisions. All right, so we're in the big blind. We've got the king of hearts, queen of hearts, king, queen suited, and the action folds to us. So again, the cutoff men raised, and now actions on us with king, queen suited in the big blind. Now, this guy's got an M of 15. He's got about 40 times the big blind in his stack. So I don't want to get into a 3-bet, 4-bet, 5-bet shove scenario here. Uh, King-Queen suited plays a lot better at this stack depth, in my opinion, as a call. So that's what we did. We decided to call, and now we're going to play a pot. Heads up from out of position against this opponent. Now, uh, before we talk about the flop, etc., let's just talk about this opponent. He is what I call a pretty average New Jersey online reg. Now, that's not meant to be either a compliment nor an insult. So he's just kind of a typical 
player from New Jersey. Now, when you play in these tournaments, some of the players are from New Jersey and some of them are from Nevada based on their screen names and other factors, including a hand and mob search that might list a lot of their caches having been at the Borgata or if they play on Party Poker New Jersey, which does not share a player pool with Nevada, I can pretty much determine whether or not the player is in New Jersey. Uh, what does that mean? Why do I care? Well, there are subtle differences between the typical playing style in the East Coast versus the West Coast. All things being equal, the players in Nevada tend to be a little bit more wide open. There is a little bit more light three betting out there. There's a little bit more aggression out there. And the players in New Jersey tend to prefer small pots at all costs. Uh, They don't really bluff enough, generally speaking, and this player would also be included in that. But then they also have this weird tendency to call too much in spots where the typical Nevada players would actually fold. So there's a bit of a dichotomy to all of this, but if I had to try to summarize the typical New Jersey reg, I would say that he is a little too tight pre-flop and a little bit too sticky post-flop. And they tend to play a trappy style as well. So that's the sort of profile that we're working with versus this particular opponent. So we call and... The pot is now 2,800. Our opponent has the effective stack with 21,000. And the flop comes queen of spades, 10 of diamonds, tray of hearts. So queen, 10, tray, rainbow, hero holding the king of hearts, queen of hearts. So top pair and a good kicker as well as backdoor straight and flush draws. This is a decidedly above average flop for our hand. Of course, we check in flow and hope that the raiser decides to see bet. However, he checks behind. So we're going to a turn, still 2,800 in the pot, and the turn is a five of spades. So now it's queen, 10, tray, five with two spades. Hero holding the king, queen of hearts. Uh, This time we lead. We don't want to give him another chance to do pot control if he's got a hand with which he might want to call a small bet. We're value targeting hands like king 10, possibly pocket nines, uh, worse queens, of course, queen jack, but I really don't expect him to check behind on the flop with too many of those hands. But, you know, guys like him will mix it up once in a while and do that trappy thing where you just check behind with top pair. So it's not completely out of the question. We could also get value from draws like King Jack, although we do block that. But Jack 9 is in villain's range as well. So there are some open enders as well as gut shots like Ace Jack that might want to give action on a small bet as well. So we fire 900 into 2,800. So just under one third of the pot. Uh, I really like my sizing here. It allows him to make a lot more mistakes than he would to a larger bet. I'm really begging for a call here. I'm 99% sure that my hand is good and I do want action for it. So I'm happy when he calls the 900. So now the pot is 
4,600, and the river is the king of clubs for a final board of queen, 10, tray, five, king, with no flush, hero having top two pair with the king, queen of hearts. Uh, having led on the turn, I think we need to bet on the river, and I think that there are some pretty strong arguments to be made here for not only betting again, but betting pretty big. And part of it is that I believe our opponent is a New Jersey rag. And as I mentioned, they tend to be a little bit sticky in post-flop spots where their West Coast counterparts would just fold. Also, we do think that there is a good amount of King Jack in our opponent's range. So having made a top pair type of hand on the river, who would be hard-pressed to find a fold on the river, particularly against a player with my profile, particularly in this tournament where I have been pretty aggressive. So I'm not expecting my opponents to fold strong hands against me very often. And then the final factor is that this card may very well have given him a worse two-pair when he has King-10. So for all of those reasons, I decide to be optimistic and go ahead and put in a big bet. So into 4,600, I actually bet 4,001. <laughs> I don't know why I put that little annoying one on there on the end. But our opponent called with pocket jacks. So that's pretty surprising. I mean, he called us down with a pair below second pair, which is, uh, you know, awfully loose for a tournament like this. His logic probably has something to do with the fact that he blocks pretty well a lot of our value. Uh, we would certainly be making this play with a straight ace-jack or jack-nine. And with Villain holding two of the jacks, that does increase fairly substantially the likelihood that we are bluffing. And with this big sizing, we're kind of representing a pretty nutted range, of course. So we should be polarized between very strong hands and bluffs. Villain probably doesn't think there is very much two-pair in our range, and that may embolden him to make a pretty loose call here, holding just two jacks. So that was a pretty nice hand for us and increased our chip stack in a pretty substantial way. And we continued with the smooth sailing for a few more levels, and now we were to the point where the three hours of registration were finally a thing of the past. And so we had 43,000 when the average was right around 34,000. So it's always nice to be keeping up or a little bit more than the average stack, especially in a tournament like this one, which is a larger buy-in. And it's also what they call a double stack event. So it's nice to have enough chips to have wiggle room without worrying about always having to either push or fold. So at this point, the blinds were 350 and 700 with a 90 ante for a starting pot of 1860. Again, we have 43K and the average is about 34K, which is roughly an M of 20. 
which is pretty healthy when the average player has an M of 20 at this stage of a tournament. Uh, the action folds to the hero, that's me, in the hijack at the same table we've been discussing, holding the queen of hearts, 10 of diamonds. Now, queen 10 off in the hijack is optional. It's kind of towards the bottom of my opening range. Certainly love to be suited. You know what? At a really tough table where the blinds like to three bet or when players just always think that a steal is a bluff and they like to three bet and challenge you all the time, you're fine just folding this hand. Just throw it away when it's folded to you in the hijack at that kind of table. But, you know, that's not the type of table we have here. I mean, the player on my immediate left is kind of a loose, passive guy, like maybe a satellite winner or or something. Like, he's not really attacking a lot. He's not three-betting as much as he should, especially given his stack size because he's actually only sitting on 17K to start this hand. And then the button is a very tight player. Uh, the small blind is a good player, but he's pretty tight himself. He's a well-known player, Jed Hoffman, that I've been at so many tables with since I first signed up for WSRP.com right around this time last year, actually. And then the big blind in this hand is the New Jersey reg that I mentioned in the previous hand. So there's not really a ton of fear about getting three bet or being put into a tough spot. And so for that reason, I'm comfortable opening a hand that at certain tables I might fold. So this is a table that inspires me to open up my game a little bit and go ahead and take a hand that is basically towards the bottom of my range for opening from the hijack, queen 10 offsuit. And I just went with the min raise. My online strategy of late has mostly been min raising, especially once the antis kick in. The reason why is because players still fold too much from the blind, so I may as well make that mistake bigger. In other words, if, if my smaller raise gives them a better price and they still still choose to fold given that good price, then that's better than making a bigger raise and having them fold getting worse odds. For me, it's all about trying to induce more mistakes and bigger mistakes from as many of my opponents as possible. And I've just seen the min rays take it down, even with these big antis, so many times on this site that it, it would be very tough for anyone to convince me that it's more correct to bet bigger in these situations. So I just min raise uh, the cutoff, who's that loose passive satellite winner that I mentioned uh, just calls, and he's now only got 17000 in his stack. So it's strange for him to be calling almost 10% of his stack with any hand. The tighty, tight, tight guy on the button folds, as expected. And the small blind, this well-known player, Jed Hoffman, uh, he's tight, but he's talented. He's got $2 million worth of online winnings, another close to a million in live winnings, and I've been at a lot of tables with him. His strategy tends to be uh, tight but tough. He's not just super bluffable. He's not nitty. He just tends to play a tough game. Uh, he's very a little bit trappy, a little bit tricky. He's not afraid to bluff where appropriate. So 
I'm not happy that he called. And his call from out of the small blind, I think, gets a little bit more weight than if he called in the big blind. Because when you choose to put in more chips, even versus a min raise, when you're in the small blind, you're basically saying, I'm willing to play this multi-way pot from out of position, and I really wasn't getting that great of a price to do so. You won't see too many good players making this call with speculative hands like 8-5 suited. So he's got a pretty strong range here. And so I'm not too pleased that he calls from the small blind. And I'm also not surprised at all that the big blind called because he's a New Jersey reg and I don't really expect him to ever fold any two cards getting this price. And really, nor should he. So the four of us see a flop. And with 6,400 in the pot, it comes 10 of clubs, 5 of spades, tray of clubs. So 10, 5, tray with 2 clubs. Hero holding the queen 10 offsuit with no club. And they both check in flow. And the action is on Clayton Fletcher. All right. I think that we want to be betting here. A whole lot. We've got top pair with a reasonable kicker. We have three opponents, and it's a fairly draw-heavy board with a few possible straight draws and the fairly obvious club flush draw. Again, we have no clubs ourselves. So checking here opens you up to losing the pot when someone just gets the flush for free, which is bad, but more so, I feel like it opens up the possibility of getting bluffed by someone who picks up a flush draw if it comes a club on the turn. Also, you might be in a tough spot if the turn's a brick and then some other opponent decides to lead twice. You know, Do we really want to go all the way down to the river with just a pair of 10s and a queen kicker? I don't know. I feel like we'll be behind a lot but we also can't really be folding everything because you need to have some bluff catchers in your range. So for all of those reasons, I just decide to bet. I don't see too much reason to bet big. I want to get action from flush draws. I want to get action from worse tens. I want to get action from middle pair. If somebody has a hand like 6-5 or something like that or ace-5, those hands can call a smaller bet and would have to fold to a larger one. So I decide to bet 2100 into the 6400 pot. I like this sizing on the flop. I'm hoping I don't get too much action. So the in-position player folds to my delight. And Jed Hoffman decides to call in the small blind, which does not make me any type of happy. The big blind folds, so at least I'm heads up but I'm going to be heads up in position versus a player who has a stronger range than I do. So we're not loving life once he decides to put more chips in. The turn comes the six of clubs. And so now with 10,600 in the pot, Jed checks to me again. The board is now 10, five, tray, six with three clubs and Hero holding the Queen of Hearts, Ten of Diamonds. Now, when he checks again, he should always be checking 
all of his flushes, he should often be checking when he just has a pair of 10s. Although I think if he has a good kicker that's a club with that 10, I think he will often bet because he has not only top pair, but also a strong flush draw to go along with it. And I think that a player like Jed would want to get value and not count on me to put more chips in, especially when there are so many scare cards that could hit the river and cause me to freeze up with hands that might otherwise call on 4th Street. So that's an important consideration for you to keep in mind when you are out of position and you want to get more chips in. Sometimes the only way to do that is to just fire yourself and hope that your opponent has something to call with or might just be curious enough to put you on a bluff. So Jed does not bet here, but I also don't bet on this card because I just don't think that my hand is any good very much. And I also don't think that I can get him to fold a better hand than the one I have. You combine that with the fact that this guy is a known, tough, trappy type of player, and it becomes very clear that checking behind is the play. So there's still 10,600 in the middle, and the river comes the four of clubs for a final board of 10, 5, tray, 6, 4, with four clubs. And our opponent checks once more. All right, if there was ever a perfect scare card, if my opponent doesn't have a club, it would be hard for him to bet the river. Also, I could easily have a deuce or a seven for the straight and would be value betting that as well. This feels like a spot where turning top pair with a decent kicker into a bluff is a profitable play. The problem for me is my opponent's actions, by virtue of the fact that he is tough and talented, are impure against someone that's a little bit less balanced, less skillful. I could easily go ahead and turn this pair of 10s into a bluff and try to get him to fold a hand like Ace-10, hoping that he has no club. The problem is he will often have a club here when he checks. He might even have a straight. He could even call me down with a set. I don't want to try to outplay this opponent in this situation. I check back fully expecting to lose this pot one way or the other. And I did just that when Jed Hoffman showed the King 10 of hearts. So he had a pair of 10s as well with a better kicker. As the cards lay, perhaps I could have gotten away with a bluff here. Uh, But, you know, this guy, he's going to call down some percentage of the time just because he knows about having to have bluff catchers in his range. It's such a scary board. Three, four, five, six, and four clubs. I'm not sure that he would ever call, but I wouldn't be surprised if he heroed me anyway. So I ended up going the... uh, less aggressive, lower variance route. So we'll never know whether or not I could have gotten this bluff through. That'll do it for this episode. want to thank you guys once again for all of your beautiful comments and five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. It really does mean a lot. 
Also, please be sure to follow me on Twitter at Clayton Comic. I will be announcing some stuff in the coming weeks that I think some of you will be interested in learning about. Of course, we'll be back next week with another episode. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. Oh,